0: Brought to you by Penguin.
1: The title of the book, Bewilderment, comes from a magnificent essay uh, written by Lewis Thomas, and the essay is about his attempt to find the common denominator uh, between those, all of these pursuits, the arts, the humanities, and sciences thomas ends up saying i think i found that one thing that characterizes astronomy and genetics chemistry and biology but also theater and painting and and writing he says the thing that they all have in common is
0: bewilderment hello and welcome to another episode of the penguin podcast with me nihala fanayaka On this award-winning show, we invite authors to lay bare their inspirations and their desires. We ask them to analyse their specialisms and reveal their weaknesses as we probe a little deeper into what drives them. We also request that our guests bring with them a selection of objects that have had an impact on them or their writing. And today I'm intrigued to find out more about why an unsmoked hickory nut and a petrified redwood tree have left such a mark on my guest. I'm joined by a Pulitzer Prize-winning author whose works, by his own admission, share a restlessness in theme, covering densely intellectual topics such as DNA, virtual reality and medicine, all with a lightness of touch, a compelling narrative and a fascination with the natural world around us. Despite threatening that his most recent novel, the ambitious environmental fable The Overstory, would be his last – I'm delighted to say that he's back with another powerful Booker shortlisted novel called Bewilderment, in which he casts his analytical eye skywards to interrogate our planet, the people on it, and the complex relationships those people have with their loved ones and their environment. It gives me enormous pleasure to welcome onto the Penguin podcast, Richard Powers. Hi, Richard.
1: Hello, Nihal. Thanks for that truly lovely introduction.
0: So why go back? Why say... I'm doing no more, and then write again.
1: (laughs) I wish I knew. I mean, I've been at this game for a long time, almost 40 years. Overstory was my 12th novel, and I truly was exhausted at the end of it. It's a long book. It had a very large cast of characters. Uh, It was written in multiple narrative styles. It unfolded over a long period of time. And I'm an increasingly old man, and I was just beat at the end of it. And in in addition to to being overwhelmed by the five and a half years that it took to write the book, I really had a moment where I felt, you know, I've said what I have to say. And I was thinking of, of the Tao Te Ching saying, you know, when you have said what you have to say, remove yourself from the stage. I mentioned all of those doubts to to a friend of mine, Barbara Kingsolver, and said, I think it might be my last, you know, I think I'd like to go out with this as my as my consummation. And she said, good luck, you know, writer's right, write, uh, and you're going to have to find some way to justify your existence and fill the days. And sure enough, a few weeks later, I did have that feeling of not necessarily having to justify my existence, but having to have a process to be immersed in a process that makes sense of and consolidates and extends the experience of of, of my days and to put them into into a story that brings together what it is that uh, that my feelings and my thinking have led me to to discover
0: richard there's a scottish novelist called john neven whose object was once a quote by James Joyce, which is, write it, damn you, mm. write it. What else are you good for? <laughs> Perfect. Perfect.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if you do spend decades and decades defining yourself as someone who puts all experience back into the, into the process, you do wake up in the morning and say, uh, What do I do now? You know, how do I justify my existence here? And it does have a way of sharpening uh, where you are and who you think you are.
0: Should the writing process be entirely pleasurable? Or should there be an element of pain, Hmm. challenge, (laughs) frustration, anger?
1: Well, I'll start by saying Sometimes that line is only imaginary between those states. It's very, very thin on the best of days. I'm not sure there should be any shoulds in art at all. Uh, uh, you know, we we learn by going where we have to go. We do uh, what we need to do and we figure out our shoulds on the fly and and one by one, I think. But again, to to double back what I said in jest, feeling pain and feeling anger is also feeling energized and feeling present. And that brings with it a kind of pleasure.
0: So then you said it was weeks, really, Mm. between saying, I don't think I can do this again and realizing that, would it be wrong to say the word addicted to it?
1: (laughs) Probably not. And it is embarrassing to say that it was, was mere weeks between that initial sensation and the realization that, no, you know, Barbara is right, writer's is right. If addiction means that you feel edgy and withdrawal symptoms when it's not happening, uh, that box is checked, you know. Uh, the beautiful thing, though, about this particular addiction is it's, it's not – it resists habituation, you aren't returning to the same process again and again. For me, uh, each of these 13 books has been an excursion into a new way of looking at the world, a new kind of disciplinary organization. And it has moved me forward in my life to, to embark each time on what seems to be the same process, but like evolution itself, just keeps unfolding in different ways.
0: When did you become aware, and I know you will... Perhaps balk at the immodesty in this question, that you were brilliant at it. Not that you're good at it, but you are brilliant.
1: At it. <laughs> oh my goodness! Are there any you know, constitutional rights in this country to not have to answer self-incriminating <laughs> questions? <laughs> Uh, I was excited by your question because it started out, when did you become aware? And then there was a little pause and I thought, well, this is going to be interesting (laughs) Uh, to dig back to those (laughs) primal memories. I don't think of myself as as having any special capacities. I mean, we all lie along so many different kinds of – Uh, distribution curves and the way that all of those curves come together is absolutely distinct. There is genius in everyone. Certainly uh, the existence of consciousness itself, the ability to put senses into words and to use words to create emotional states, we all do that. We all do that with such facility and ingenuity and genius. Uh, the, The ability to make another person laugh or cry uh casually or in a in a formal setting that's all that writing is just a concentration of those things that all of us do all the time i will say this you know the genius of writers manifests itself in so many different ways and i've just recently read through the other uh, five books on the booker shortlist and every one of them causes me envy every one of them had some element in it that I realized I could not do. And I think, yeah, I, I would be a better writer if I knew how to do that. No one can do it all. And that's the beauty of it. That's what. That's why we love the diversity of, of expression that, that writers come up with.
0: While I admire the inherent socialist nature of that answer, <laughs> I have right. to say, at the risk of this becoming an hour of me fanboying you, <laughs> that I struggle to see how... Somebody could create more nuance and depth and love and an emotional bond than you have between Theo and Robin.
1: Oh, well, bless you. You know, this book wasn't a different kind of excursion for me, it focuses very narrowly on robin and theo where the overstory had this cast of nine and more central characters and it had these great comings and goings and you know immense structural complexity this book unfolds over one year between this 39-year-old bewildered father and his 9-year-old bewildered son and for me to keep that tight Focus to keep that short duration of time and small cast and to cast the book entirely through that first-person monologue of Theo and really make this the most character-driven and and personality-driven book of mine that I've ever written, it was an intense experience for me. The, The book is in some ways a pandemic book. I wrote it during lockdown, and these two lost boys were my companions during that you know that strange period of of isolation and i think
0: perhaps that
1: gave them more depth than characters in my previous books
0: um, let's go to your first mm. object uh, i believe you've categorized them by which sense they stimulate mm-hmm. so let's start with your hearing right. shall we
1: so my object number 1 is uh, Goldberg Variation 18 by uh, Bach. I once wrote an entire novel that was based around the Goldberg Variations, an extraordinary, extraordinary musical landmark that takes the simplest possible material, just a little piece of of fluff, a 32-note trivial wandering through the major scale, and turns it into an endless set of ingenious variations uh, where Bach does literally everything imaginable with this little tiny piece of nothing. And I've always been inspired by the simplicity and the endless Baroque complexity that Bach manages to fit into the same vessel. I uh, live alone in the Smoky Mountains, and it's tough to make music alone with my primary instrument, which is the cello. So while I've been living in the Smokies, I've taught myself how to play a piano. I can't play many pieces. I can't play any piece as well. But I can play uh, a Variation 18, which is a Canon at the 6th, and to feel in my fingers Uh, this absolutely simple pattern of two lines imitating each other at the uh, interval of a sixth, while the left hand traces out this tiny little base that informs the entire magnum opus of the Goldberg Variations. And to do that in the middle of the forest is to be very, very small and very, very large at the same time.
0: Are you a a scientist that has this unstoppable gravitational pull towards the arts that controls you? Or are you an artist that has a gravitational pull towards the sciences?
1: Well, I, I'm, I can't claim to be a scientist except maybe in the sense that, that Robbie himself is a scientist in the way that all children are scientists. That is being infinitely curious about the things around me and wanting to know how they work. Um, I did want to be a professional scientist and I somehow slid down that slippery slope of the seductions that art offers. And I'm glad I did. I mean, I think I would have been fine as a physicist or in some other scientific discipline. But as a writer... I've been able to use that temperamental inclination and capacity uh, to search for pattern and to uh, be curious about all things to my advantage inside art. I don't see a huge difference between what scientists are doing and what artists are doing. That is they're both exploring with all the tools at their disposal uh, this question of you know who we are and what's all around us. In fact, I'll tell you a little something, Nihal. Uh, uh, The title of the book, Bewilderment, comes from a magnificent essay uh, written by uh, a physician biologist named Louis Thomas, who was also a glorious writer of essays. Uh, Thomas wrote an essay called On Matters of Doubt, in which he tries to explore this question that you just raised, that we, as a culture might be dividing into artists and into scientists or into humanists and and scientists. And the essay is about his attempt to find the common denominator uh, between those all of these pursuits, the arts, the humanities and sciences. And Thomas ends up saying, I think I've found it. I think I've found that one thing that characterizes uh, astronomy and genetics and uh, uh chemistry and biology but also theater and painting and and writing he says the thing that they all have in common is bewilderment
0: mm. uh, yeah i don't think you can read any of carlo ravelli or uh, i've interviewed three astronauts mm. and they're people of science and yet once you're floating above the earth philosophy <laughs> and art and mm. <laughs> it does it, it, it does overpower Absolutely. you you know you, you ask for bigger and deeper and wider questions than perhaps science can offer you um let's go to your next object um and you will be pleased but perhaps not surprised to learn that this is the first time in the penguin podcast anyone has bought an unsmoked hickory nut. That's uh, uh, an object, a definite first, uh, Richard. Um, uh, the question,
1: of course, is why? Right. Oh, have they brought uh, uh, Goldberg Variation 18 before?
0: <laughs> well, there's been classical music ah, okay. before. The I, category. I would just say it like that. right? right? Said, okay. Yeah, the category. Right. Uh, or maybe I should have been broader. That no one's brought an unsmoked nut of any variety. To, uh, right. Or perhaps
1: any tree part whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In any case, yeah, so I was thinking of these four you know initially, the, I love the assignment you know uh, just it 's uh, delightfully estranging and and uh, unbalancing to have to think of of what four objects to bring in and it, I immediately thought of this sort of senses uh, deployment, and uh, since since taste and smell are really both forms of chemical sensing. I I kind of lumped them together in this second object and thereby got my classic five senses uh, to fit into four objects. Uh, Smell has become increasingly important to me. As I've become increasingly interested in, in living where I live, that is in not doing the classic human thing, of saying my world is created independent of location and I just kind of passed through location as a, as a lamentable uh, impediment uh, on my way to inventing myself. I've kind of done that for a large part of my life and now I'm in the process of inverting it and saying, you know, no, I want, I want to know what the living earth underneath my feet wants to do in this place, what the affordances are, what the native species are, what's happening in all seasons and in all weather. Uh, and smell is a huge part of that. And so, you know, being under the trees and, and smelling them has changed the way that I feel physically. Uh, I've lived in the Smokies for about five years And it's kind of an old man's thing to say in a way, but I do feel better at 64 than I did at 32. Uh, And part of it is recovering my senses and and attending to them, just being present. Hickory is an extraordinary smell. Uh, When I walk the trails, there there are a thousand miles of trails in my backyard. And when I walk them in late summer or early fall, uh, the hickories rain down. Uh, uh, This year was a mast year in certain parts of the park, meaning that there was an especially heavy uh, uh, fall of hickory nuts. And if you take a green hickory nut and you press your thumb into it and you take a deep whiff, it's indescribable there's an excitement it's I, I don't know what to say it's embarrassing to say it's sexual but it's comparable you know there's a there's a way in which my body just perks up it just says something's happening here i'm getting a dose of something that's quite wonderful uh we like to think of ourselves as having lost a lot of our smell but it's still incredibly sensitive and uh i will keep a green hickory in my house uh, and and do this little trick of releasing uh, the chemicals that are in the husk uh, uh, as my little drug of choice as I write, and uh, it requires changing out the hickory uh, as as it uh, grows old and desiccates, but it's lovely to keep one handy. Uh,
0: you mentioned being alone in the Smoky Mountains. In what ways is solitude the friend and the enemy of the author? Mm.
1: It's the friend because it is the place where all of the massive accumulated experience of a lifetime has enough room and safety to develop and express. It's the enemy of the artist because if you're in that dark room for too long, you begin to lose the things that tie you together to other people, and and to place, and and to the, the changing nature of of your society, and that you know, it it again, it just it simply means that there is no solution, there is no final balancing point. You have to come and go, and so many writers have talked about this. You know, uh, you find the safety for a while, and then you have, to, you have to pitch yourself back out into the maelstrom and, and reset the, the dial again.
0: Can you be a writer if you're not comfortable with yourself in your own company?
1: Oh, I, that's interesting. I, 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 the, 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 there are two aspects to that question. You know, again, when you said, can you be a writer if you're not comfortable with yourself – In the sense of not comfortable with your temperament or your personality, I would say very few writers are comfortable with themselves. And that's probably what what (laughs) writers, you know, that's probably why the task of writing is so compelling for so many of us. But I think you also meant the capacity to be in that solitude. And my guess is, you know, anecdotally, personally, it's a profession that attracts People who do draw energy and clarity from being by themselves, at least for a you know substantial part of the day. On the other hand, you know there are plenty of people who have that comfort who also need to, you know, put on the glad rags and get out at night. So, yeah, comfort is also a moving target.
0: Indeed. Let's move on to touch. Mm. So. Tell us what object you've brought to us, Richard. So my touch object is a bit of petrified wood
1: that was given to me by the poet Forrest Gander, a remarkable American poet, whose uh, late wife C.D. Wright actually wrote one of the best books on trees that I know of called Casting Deep Shade. Forrest and I did an event together in Redwood Country in California, which is the part of the world that inspired Overstory. It was my discovery of redwood trees at the age of 55 that made me realize that I've been blind to... Almost everything that life is doing in focusing exclusively on the human, Uh, it's pretty tough to stand in front of a mature redwood tree uh, that can be as wide as a house, uh, as tall as a football pitch and, you know, as old as as Charlemagne or or older uh, and not say – I've missed a lot. <laughs> and, you know, life has an agency that is an, unfolding on a scale and a time frame, uh, that I have trouble wrapping my head around. Well, Forrest's gift at this event of a chunk, you know, roughly, no, 20 centimeters long of petrified coastal redwood, he further increased the scale and time frame of amazement by presenting something that was over 100 million years old. And to to think that this tree dates way past that date and had a a very large range across most of uh, large parts of North America uh, and to hold in my hand a mineralized version of what was once a living thing that was turning minerals into biology— is to belong to a change of seasons that uh, defies anyone's ability to, to wrap their head around. I think it's that constant reminder of just how patient and resilient and long life is that I find so stimulating when I put my hand on this thing and, and feel both the rock and the living tree at the same time.
0: Richard, this seems like a good time to take a listen to an extract from the brilliant Bewilderment. He woke me in the night.
2: How many stars did you say there are? I couldn't be angry. Even yanked from sleep. I was glad he was still stargazing. Multiply every grain of sand on earth by the number of trees. One hundred octillion. I made him say twenty-nine zeros. Fifteen zeros in, his laughter turned to groans. If you were an ancient astronomer using Roman numerals, you couldn't have written the number down, not even in your whole lifetime. How many have planets? That number was changing fast. Most probably have at least one, many have several. The Milky Way alone might have nine billion Earth-like planets in their stars' habitable zones. Add the dozens of other galaxies in the local group, then, Dad? He was a boy attuned to loss. Of course, the great silence hurt him. The outrageous size of emptiness made him ask the same question Enrico Fermi did over that famous lunch in Los Alamos three-quarters of a century ago. If the universe were larger and older than anyone could imagine, we had an obvious problem. Dad, with all those places to
0: live, how come nobody's anywhere? That was a reading from Bewilderment, read by Eduardo Ballerini and written by my guest today, Richard Powers. If you're interested in the audiobook edition, and please, you should be, follow the link in this episode's programme notes. And while you're there, why not rate, review and follow the Penguin podcast? Your friends will be envious of you once you've done that. And so, to the last of your objects today, Richard, and this time it's a delight for the eyes. As this is a podcast, please describe what it is you want us all to see.
1: About four miles down the mountain from my house is the middle prong of the little river. It's called the Little River. It's actually a pretty good-sized river. And after a day of writing, it's my great pleasure and, and privilege and good fortune to be able to head down the mountain and sit by the side of the river or even get in it. The Smokies is filled with uh, 2,500 miles of mountain streams and rivers, uh, some of them at a very steep pitch, and they've been tumbling through uh, these mountains uh, that were at one time uh, far higher than the Himalayas. The mountains themselves are hundreds of millions of years old. They've been pushing rocks downstream and providing uh, habitat for countless creatures for hundreds of millions of years. And to sit by this uh, set of cascades is really a refreshment of all my senses. You can smell not only the ions that the moving water releases into the air, but all of the biological activity that is churned up uh, by the river. Uh, and uh, you, can, you can certainly hear this, this beautiful, constant hum of falling water uh, that can be so entrancing. I've decided to focus on sight because it is a kind of meditation for me. To sit still and watch this water because the water has, the falling water, has two paradoxically contradictory qualities at the same time. It is constantly in motion, constantly changing. And if I focus my attention on any small part of these cascades, it's infinite drama. You know, you can you can see living things dashing in and out of the current all the time. Uh, there are uh, supposedly two thousand fish in every mile of river in the Smokies, and they often break the surface. And of course, the invertebrates going in and out, and the birds going in and out of the water. Um, but the water itself is in constant motion, in constant uh, change, and that is uh, 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 capable of putting me in a trance-like state. But to shift my attention just slightly from the constant change of of any local patch of the stream to the standing now of the stream as a whole, the fact that as I scan up and down uh, 100 yards of river in either direction, it seems to be completely stationary, completely motionless, and I can look at that for hours and allow my brain to return to a kind of undirected state. It's almost, it is almost is almost like meditation in the same way that watching flames dance in a fire can hold you perfectly still and attentive for long stretches of time. Being by this stream, which is such a, a feast for all my senses, and just to be in a in a state that's simultaneously aware of constant change and constant stasis is the most rejuvenating thing that I know.
0: Amazing. The, I, I present some of these questions with binary mm. options, uh, a caveat being is the full understanding that there are levels of nuance mm. that exist between the two options I give you. But in terms of overthinking, do you find that invigorating or oppressive?
1: Well, by the word overthinking, I think we've already built in the semantic of uh, unnecessary or oppressive. Um, mm. But n- let me say this. I, I think there are very few things that a writer could entertain in his or her own mind, very few thoughts or connections that he or she could make that wouldn't be useful in some way during the process of writing the book. I think the key to growth and the key to connection with the reader consists in paring that down in an aesthetically pleasing but also emotionally intriguing and intellectually engaging way and finding ways in which just the tip of the iceberg can suggest everything underneath but before finding that you almost have to travel all over the iceberg and 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 take its dimensions so a bit of overthinking in the process is terrific so long as a lot of it can be removed and leave just that hint of you know the the just the first little piece of thread that can invite the reader into that that deeper labyrinth that remains uh unexpressed
0: well it must be essential to be an overthinker to be an author because you expose things that we perhaps don't think Mm. about perhaps where we become obsessed with the superficiality of Mm. our lives we forget and authors such as your good self help us to understand ourselves in a better way i mean bewilderment is an extraordinary book
1: (laughs) thank you your formulation about writers and and their task is you know much appreciated i would I would only say it bears repeating that feelings are a kind of thought they are a rapid preverbal, uh, sometimes inchoate way of thinking, a way of knowing the world and responding to it uh, appropriately or sometimes inappropriately. So when you say overthinking we should broaden that tent a bit and say overfeeling is also part of of the author's process.
0: Finally, Richard, we like to ask our guests to recommend a book they've recently loved uh, to our listeners. Now, I understand that you have, as you pointed out at the beginning of our conversation, gone through your fellow nominees for Mm. the Booker Mm. Prize. But before that, what was the book that was beside your bedside table (laughs) in the Smoky Mountains.
1: I keep by my bedside table Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. Uh, This is a set of essays by a woman uh, who is herself a leading biologist. She studies and researches and publishes on mosses, and she's made significant contributions in the scientific domain of our understanding of mosses. She is also an Anishinaabe. She's an enrolled uh, member of the Anishinaabe people and, you know, is herself uh, a Native American and has a deep connection to the ways of of knowing that the Anishinaabe people have. And at the same time, she's also the mother of daughters. And Braiding Sweetgrass is a series of brilliant and beautiful essays that attempt to weave together these three different strands of knowing, the way of a scientist, the way of an indigenous person, and the way of a parent. And I listened to this book uh, when I first came in in contact with it on audio, read by uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer. And I was on a car journey across uh, the United States, and I had to pull over more than once because... I was uh crying so hard it was hard to see through the windshield. Uh the writing is so beautiful and the and the wisdom is you know is consummate. I mean uh, she knows what we all need to remember and it's not a coincidence that uh the robin in my book uh, Bewilderment is is named after his uh, distant spiritual godmother.
0: Richard uh, time spent in your company is, uh, is time that goes far too quickly, I have to say. Thank you so much for this conversation.
1: Oh, thanks, Nihal. It was a great pleasure
2: talking to you. Thanks for the good questions.